0: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the new books network.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm LaToya Johnson, and I'm here with Maya Phillips, a critic at large for The New York Times, to discuss her book, Nerd Adventures in Fandom from the Universe to the Multiverse. It's an incisive essay collection that explores race, religion, sexuality, class, and gender through the lens of pop culture fandoms. Welcome, Maya. Thank you for being here with me. Thanks for the invite, LaToya. So before we get started into the book, um, you're a critic, an arts critic for the New York Times, correct? Uh, can you tell us a bit about your professional journey and how you incorporate your love of nerd culture into
2: what you do? Sure. Um, I started writing criticism, I think, you know, as a teenager in, in okay. high school, like legit. We, My little... Uh, really intense Catholic private school I worked for the newspaper and I remember writing a review of some kind of Jesus movie and (laughs) of course I wasn't allowed to say anything bad because it was Jesus but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really enjoyed writing about like everything kind of arts and lifestyle in my little high school uh And, you know, I continued on through college, again, like, doing reviews. I found that, like, theater was my thing that I was really particularly interested in. And from there, I just kind of, you know, as a freelancer, especially graduating at a time of recession, like we are in now, (laughs) it was really tough to you know get a job and i really wanted a staff writer job at a paper but knew that that was rare and it continues to be rare so i just kind of freelanced everywhere i could and i just kind of wrote about everything arts and entertainment i could um I had a few very short stints in like news reporting, which I hated, but it was good practice for me. And again, I was just trying to get as much experience as I could in every area. So eventually I just started writing for larger and larger publications. Um, Eventually I got a job on the copy desk for The New Yorker. And there I was steadily again, like freelancing for other people and like writing for the New Yorker. And I started at the Times as the first arts critic fellow. And um, I had been writing a couple of reviews for them over the years. And they invited me on and they hired me a couple months in. So that was really great. And it was really impressed it's really interesting actually seeing that journey like starting off that i remember having such trouble like just a few years ago pitching like nerd culture kind of articles i would have to like argue them like oh no no, no. like enough people will read this Do- doctor who article like enough people will read like this thing about anime and i still came up with a good amount of resistance and it's so funny how the culture has shifted so dramatically that now I mean and part of it is also me being in the position I am that I am a staff writer at the New York Times and they kind of know my areas of expertise so that's part of it but the other part of it is just us being in a culture where nerddom has become so mainstream so quickly and has been so profitable so now I can be like, "Oh, can I I just write this anime article?" and my editors are like, "Okay, cool. Sure, do that." <laughs> or like, I'm like, you know, or like examining several Marvel movies isn't like that weird. I mean, you still get the conversations about what is, you know, highbrow, and what is lowbrow, but still people are going to read about it. Cuz that's what people are investing their time in across all platforms. Um, so I have been very fortunate that I can write about, you know, highbrow arts and culture, uh, you know, theater and like, um, you know, like music and dance and all, and like any kind of arts, basically that grabs my interest. But I can also write about, you know, the nerdy stuff that is personal to me. And like, you know, I grew up with this stuff. So it's really precious to me to be able to go back to these fandoms that were so private to me and that I thought were, you know, only mine and like for a couple friends, you know, that uh, not everyone was watching like Dragon Ball Z after school or like Sailor Moon, you know, I, I was like trying to find my people back then and now they're everywhere. And it's amazing that I get to bring my um, critical mind to that stuff too. And of course, I'm going to want to talk to you about
1: the casual consumption of nerd culture now. I'm going to want to get into that a bit later. But um, can you talk a little bit now about uh, the book's premise, nerd's premise, and the meaning of nerd culture? Mm -hmm. For For those who don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, starting off with just like, the word nerd, like that has changed so much over the last couple decades. It was a derogatory term, like you didn't want to be a nerd. And now, you know, people claim it very openly. And I think I started from that kind of position where I'm like, okay, what has shifted? you know, like I said, like, why is all this stuff cool now? And part of it is Hollywood and part of it is you know it's a large part of is capitalism and like seeing what is driving sales what's driving um what's earning the most money at box office what is what is um driving money in terms of like you know games and like tv shows and all of that and i make the argument that there's a lot more to each of these fandoms than i think a lot of people realize like even though these fandoms are making a lot of money and they're more popular i think ugh, there's still that you know pers- you know there's still that um understanding of them as being as i said like you know low art forms that they're just entertainment. And I hate that kind of term, like it's just entertainment. Um, Cause I get that a lot as a critic, like people saying like, why can't you just enjoy it? Like, why can't, this is just like supposed to be fun. And that doesn't mean it has to be stupid. It doesn't mean it has to be shallow. And that's what I want to look through in, or that's what I do look through, look through in the book that I take a lot of popular fandoms and a lot of things that stuck out to me when I was a kid. And I'm like, well, look, let me look at this and its intersection with race. Let me look at the intersection with uh, like religion and identity and gender. Like all of this stuff is in these TV shows and movies and books. We just, we just, you know, tend to disregard them (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm
1: so glad that you mentioned that the fandom is a lot more than the entertainment because um, in your writing, you make it clear that you are a connoisseur of the culture, of the fun, but you're not blindly devoted to it. As I was reading your essays, uh, Gotham City, Star City, and Metropolis USA, and the birth of the Black hero, you write about the superhero mythology and the uh, socio-political themes around it which is incredibly interesting. Do you remember the moment when you first acknowledged that Star Wars and the MCU and DCU and the comics and anime and all of the materials were reflecting what was going on socially? Like, do you remember that moment where you pinpointed like, oh my God, like this is saying something socioculturally about what's happening?
2: I don't know if there was a specific instance, honestly, um it was actually really interesting with this book that, you know, being a critic now, like when I first encountered all this stuff, I wasn't thinking about any of that. Like I was, I was a kid. I was just watching, you know, like, like as entertainment, like it was fun. And I think it wasn't until just recently, like before I wrote the book that I was thinking, I was like, you know... No, let me let me let me take that back. I think it started with the birth of the black hero. That's the first bit of the book I wrote actually. That's like that was in my book proposal, the first chunk of that essay. And I think that was my entry point because I think there was that big shift with black heroes in particular that we started seeing that there was this emphasis on like Black Panther and There was uh, Luke Cage and then, you know, we had the um, Black Lightning, you know, like it, we had, and of course there had been others before, like there's always, there'd always been Storm and uh, Blade and like, you know, uh, various other heroes. But suddenly it struck me that watching these shows when I was a kid, I didn't see myself as often. And it made me think about how these fandoms depict race. Um, And I think it also came up for me thinking about anime, like being very young and not being able to articulate what the difference between like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z was, but how my classmates responded to it in terms of like, my female classmates versus my male classmates, you know, there was a very clear division there and I thinking about anime and like what characters I admired. And I remember wishing so hard there was a black sailor scout, you know, like I remember wishing that I could be a sailor scout and that like I could be a card captor, but there were never any black characters in anime or very rarely. And I was just going back to those thoughts I had, you know, and the the seeds of thoughts I had when I was a kid with these fandoms and being like, okay, what is the larger kind of sociopolitical argument there? Like from kind of my feelings of unease or confusion or whatever, watching these things. And that's where it started.
1: Oh, I love that. It reminded, I, I had this very interesting experience in the movie theater watching Wakanda Forever with my eight-year-old, and I'm watching her see Shuri and Okoye, and thinking back to your experience when you wrote about seeing Luke Cage, and wondering what things would have been like for you had you been able to see a black superhero like him at her age as opposed to just seeing whiteness in the superhero realm and so it's very interesting to hear you say that do you do you think about that often now being like oh man the kids now they get to see you know the Monica Rambos and the You know, the Falcons, who's now, I guess, Captain America now, you know, they get to see these now, whereas we didn't really have that when we were kids outside of comics. We didn't have the visuals
2: of this. Do you think about that now? Yeah, I think about it like when I go to conventions and I see like little like brown and black kids in cosplay and also sidebar like the idea like cosplay becoming such a thing now and like how easy it is to just like you know go to the go to a store and just like get a costume for some kind of obscure because some of them are kind of obscure and I'm surprised they get the costumes um like I remember it was so hard to find like you couldn't find costumes when I was a kid and I was so sad about that so like that's I mean, that's why I still cosplay now, to make up for lost time. But it was <laughs> that, and it was like Halloween, again, with the costumes that I remember I was handing out candy, and there was this there was this uh, young Black girl, and I was looking at her, and I knew she was an anime character. And I was like, oh, what show is that? I don't think I've watched it. I, it looks familiar, but I, I don't think I've actually watched the whole show. And uh, I can't remember what the show was for the life of me, but she was telling me about it. And she was talking to me. She's like, at first she was like, oh, it's just, you know, it's an anime show. Like, I wouldn't know. I was like, I watch a lot of anime. I've been watching anime uh, for before you were born. So, like, you (laughs) can talk to me. But it was so great to see that. Like, that this Black girl was like, yes, I'm an anime nerd and was dressed up. And, like, that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yes
1: speaking of the the dressing up in Moon Prism Power makeup you, uh, when you're discussing the stereotypical girlhood, womanhood that's desired in specifically manga and, and anime, you write More often I cosplay as male characters, but I'm ashamed to admit there are times when I question how well or comfortably I will fit in the mold of the magical girls like the Sailor Scouts and the Card Captors. Can you expound a little bit more on your, your personal inner
2: tensions with that? That's funny. I you know, it's so weird. I was like I was like, "Oh, I wrote that?" <laughs> yeah, no, that's an ongoing yes. It's because a... I highlighted that. <laughs> that is a very ongoing discussion I have a uh, dialogue I have with myself and with my friend who is I mentioned her a couple times in the book like she is she's been friends with me for... We've been friends for over a decade. We've been friends since college. And we go to New York Comic Con every single year. It's the one time we consistently see each other every year because she lives in Georgia. So we always discuss our cosplay together because we always cosplay as a team. And ever since we started, we have talked about doing a magical girl cosplay. And I always have a hesitation because I always want to do it. But then I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, that's kind of girly. Like, I don't know if I feel comfortable. Also, I love wearing all gray and black. And their costumes are usually very colorful. And so, like it's all of that. And I was like, oh, how many, how much frill can I do? I have to go to the bathroom. Like those bathrooms at Comic-Con are always crowded. Like, I don't want to be like dealing with petticoats and stuff. (laughs) Like it's all of that. (laughs) And it's, it's really, it's, it becomes really complex because it's also, I mean, it's still tied to my blackness too. It's tied to my body. So it's also looking at, these characters and like as a kid being like they were they were all thin and actually it's interesting to note looking back at like Sailor Moon Crystal the way they restyled the animation that they're that much more looking like Barbie dolls like the proportions are very off and me being like how are these costumes actually going to fit on me you know as like a black woman now and so the, all of that is in the background, along with, like, me thinking what it is to, what is it to be feminine? What is it to be powerful? And kind of wanting to default to the male characters, because that's, that's a more, you know, traditionally, like, masculine, traditionally, like, very obviously powerful in a very, um, you know, more, more readily acceptable way. Um, and I have to constantly fight that, and so that's still in the works. Like me and my friend, we have a plan for a magical girl cosplay coming up. Where we're working on it, and I am still working out all of that behind it. So it is hard to be a critic. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: it's hard to be a critic and love the world, love this whole culture, but have to think about the nuances. Whoa, you know,
2: you have to shut your brain off. Everything becomes about mm-hmm. oh, what does this mean politically? What does this mean? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can't just put
1: on an yes. outfit. Like, <laughs> yeah, can I just put on an outfit and have a good time? And you want to, but as being a critic and being very socially aware of what ev- all of this means. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And speak. Speaking of that, it's femininity and and powerful uh, and and exuding a certain type of power. Um, Nerd was the first time that I had read the term fan service. And it took, yeah, I had never, I was like, this is a very interesting term. What is fan service and what is its connection to the newer culture? If they, I mean, I mean, there is, if you're feminine, there is a, a very strong connection, but is that something that everyone in the culture is aware of?
2: Maybe not. You know, it's hard for me to tell because I've been in it for so long that I've known the term fan service for a while. I feel like I was using that since I was maybe a teenager or so. And I know it comes up more in, like, anime, but it definitely comes up in other nerdy contexts, too. Like, you know, with superhero movies and things. It comes up in video games a lot, too, I will say. Um, And it is just... Okay, well, it, it, it is when a creator... <laughs> we both took deep breaths. <laughs> it is when a creator is pandering to the art audience in a very clear and obvious and sometimes kind of gross way. And so that can mean in terms of narrative, like I would use that example in Sherlock. There's an episode of the series where they're kind of exploring various scenarios and it kind of like plays with the, um, uh, the kind of like gay undertones between the relationship of Sherlock and Moriarty. So it kind of, it kind of teases that. And that is a clear fan service episode because fans love shipping and, you know, like pairing up characters who are not actually romantically entangled in the series yeah yeah so that like that is a fan that's fan service like that doesn't really it doesn't come naturally from the story but it is clearly responding to the culture the fan culture around the series and when I use fandom when I use say fan service that comes up a lot specifically talking about depictions of bodies and appealing to the sexuality of the viewers and it's very limiting because you see it, you see it all the time with women, like, and you see it all the time with women heroes that like their boobs are falling out. They're wearing these skin tight outfits, and it's just not practical. It's like, how are you gonna fight crime in that when you have to worry about your boobies falling out? Like, it doesn't make sense. But, <laughs> it's, um, and I think you know, with anime, that's part of what has kind of ruined its reputation or like has given it that negative connotation that people would think about it as all sexual because so much of that you see young girls bodies. there's always like a beach episode and everyone's in their bathing suits for no reason and like you know it's 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 so unnecessary and they go out of their way to do it and that's how it's tied to gender. Cause you don't really see it with men, male characters as often you do occasionally, but it's always like very pointed. So some a show like Yuri on Ice or um, like a show like free eternal summer, like all about like a male swim team and they're all shiny and like glistening with their muscles. And like, there's again, the homoerotic undertones and The show is playing with it, but it's part of the whole conceit as opposed to the sexualization of women's bodies is just rampant. It doesn't matter if it's, it's not like um, intentionally done as part of the show's intention. It's just, it's, it's done to draw people in and it alienates viewers, I think, because I'm watching like as a straight cis woman and being like, I don't need to look at like these, these women bursting out of their bikinis. Like how, what is that supposed to do for me? Like <laughs> it's, this has, cause I'm just looking from the point, the point of view of like story and this has nothing to do with story. And it actually turns me off as a fan that I know you're pandering to a male audience because you think that that is, the only audience for this show or movie or whatever it is.
1: Do you find that they're shifting away from that a little bit more now, given the, you know, the cultural atmosphere that we're in now, is there a shift or not really?
2: No, it's still. Well, I think it depends on which genre you're talking about. Um, I think there has been a noticeable shift in like superhero movies and stuff. Um, that I feel like, like, for example, like Harley Quinn, like it's very intentional the way that her costumes have changed over the years. And with her now, you know, she's got like, she's had like the booty shorts. I don't know if she still has booty shorts, but like, <laughs> you know, and um, but with that, and I think the fact that she got her own movie, it was that was very female-led, that is about owning the female sexuality and owning the female body. And of course that gets tricky because then we're talking about, you know, how feminist it is, but (laughs) I, and I think like, you know, updating like Wonder Woman's costume and um, updating like Scarlet Witch, like all of that, but there are still moments when I'm thinking about like the Batman and um, Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman because Catwoman has always been a very sexual figure. And Halle Berry's Catwoman, I just remember that outfit made no damn sense. <laughs> 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 I was like, yes, we all recognize Halle Berry is a beautiful woman, but like what is happening here?
1: <laughs> but, like, yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer's, even hers had a very was very sexualized
2: in a way. It's cinched to her. And, yeah, yeah. And but like with the Wait. Batman, I remember there was one scene where he just is watching her change. And I'm like, what is like that's, <sighs> that's unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: I want to shift a little bit back to the birth of the Black hero and the depiction of, of Blackness in anime and fantasy. You write... Black imaginary worlds are rare in the mainstream, and when they appear, they're largely rooted in the real world. So it seems like they don't have the capacity that Middle Earth or Narnia or Resteros or Hogwarts has, whereas it's that whimsical that quaint that magical atmosphere can you talk about your experience with that with with the black fantasy having to be rooted or seemingly having to be rooted in the real world and what's going on politically
2: yeah i mean it just always feels like there's no true escapism for for black people and I mean, it is kind of, it is the reality. Like we can never take off our blackness. It is always what defines us because that is how our country is built. Like that is how our society is built. And that's what we're raised to believe. We are constantly being reminded that we are a different kind of citizen. So of course that comes across in the fiction too. Like, you know, so that's why, I think it's so, like, revolutionary for works that are actually like, yeah, I have a Black character who's just going to go off and learn magic or, like, have an adventure because we're not allowed to have fun in the same way, you know? (laughs) We're always – because historically, we've had to be in survival mode because America keeps killing us. America keeps, um, you know, keeping us down. Like, so (laughs) – It is enough for us to just exist in the world. So God forbid we actually be allowed to exist in a magical world and like have our own adventures. And it's really unfortunate. But that's part of that goes back to what you were saying earlier about a new generation. Like hopefully Black kids growing up today can have both. And I'm not saying that it should be pure escapism because there is the reality of our world. And unfortunately, we don't have the privilege to forget that white people can forget about racism for a second. They can go about their day and just think about housewives of whatever, or like, you know, (laughs) and be like, just go to CVS, you know, go have their happy hour. That's really nice. But like, it's always got to be on our mind in some, in some way. And I hope that kids today, like young black and brown kids today are still also able to engage in the magic and the fantasy because we need that too like that's that's how we remain young and that's how we have that's how we grow our imagination and we extend our imagination like that's and that's really important too
1: yes it is yes i because i found that i come to this this world, of course, I, I feel like I'm a casual consumer. I hate to admit that to you. Ah, I'm a little embarrassed, but I do come to the world for the escapism, yes. And so giving my, my little daughter, my, my little eight year old, the opportunity for escapism has been really beneficial. And for her to see, see these characters that I feel like, I wish I would have had the opportunity to see when I was her age. So I feel like I'm just coming to it now, unfortunately. But I want to shift a little bit to the outlining of your book because I absolutely love the titles of your essays. And so <laughs> I love that. So I I want to know what was your approach to outlining, nerd, number one. And second, your parents have played such a pip like an enormous role in your fandom like do you do you agree with me is that is that a true statement to make that they're that they're pretty okay and so I wanted to know. Secondly, like, how did you decide what personal stories you wanted to incorporate? Because we do see your parents a lot in in the book. So, how did you decide what stories you wanted to tell? Did you have to ask mom? Like, can I tell this story?
2: Oh my god, this is so funny. Mom always, <laughs> always complains. She's like, "Why you got to talk about me?" She's like, oh, you "Like, you know, knowing about my business." <laughs> <laughs> So she's like that. So I mostly just ignore her. But
1: But I love that. I love these two parents who like basically shared in it with you. They had this, this little Black girl that loved this world, that loved this culture, and they seem to have wanted to foster it in you as well, especially your dad. So how did you what was the outlining process? And then how did you decide what personal stories you wanted to tell?
2: I mean, that was, it was kind of challenging because like going in and writing this book, I remember working on the proposal with my agent and, you know, it, it came up a lot that this would might be a little more difficult to market because it is a mix of critical essays and like kind of memoir. And I wanted to strike just the right balance between the two, because I was interested in both. Like, it's not just about me approaching it as a critic. It is a story of my personal connection to these fandoms. And I think that gives you, I think that gives me as a critic, a certain kind of currency that like the reader, hopefully if you're a reader who it's also really invested in these fandoms. You're not going to come and be like, oh, here's like Miss New York Times critic coming in and like taking apart my things. I'm like, no, I'm in the same boat as you. Like, this is all precious to me too. And it was, uh, I I think it was easier in some places than others that like some fandoms are so inextric- inextricably, Um, connected to certain stories. Like, I think, I mean, I, you know, I talk about like Mask of the Phantasm and having that memory of going to my parents' friend's house and like watching it. And I always think of that whenever I I see or like hear about Mask of the Phantasm. And, you know, like Spider-Man, like I still think of my dad when a new Spider-Man movie comes out because he loved Spider-Man. And I just remember going to his job, you know, working in Forest Tales, and him being like, this is where Spider-Man lives. And, you know, that's like, I, I will never not think of that. So it was just finding ways to make those connections and make it all kind of flow together. And... As for the titles, coming up with the titles was hard. So I'm glad you like them. <laughs> Especially because it was so, I mean, one. it was really difficult organizing. Because, like, it's also, I touch on so many different realms in, like, each essay. And I, at first I was like, oh, let me just do, like you know, superheroes in this chapter and anime in this chapter, but there was so much crossover that I was like, you know what? Let me just let it go where it goes. And I tie it together by theme instead of by actual like kind of fandom. So that means I can return to some things more than once. It means I can like talk about how these two totally different things like interact and like are in conversation. And that is more interesting to me because that's a little more dynamic.
1: Was there, because there's so much in here, you you touched on that, there is a lot in here. And I, listen, I've got pages tabbed, I've got things highlighted. Was there anything that you left on the cutting floor that you read now and you're like, man, I wish I would have incorporated that into the book? Was there a story? Was there a a perspective that you that you wrote and you you were like, oh, it's not tying into the themes, so I can't use it. But now you're like, ah, I wish I would have incorporated that.
2: It's not so much that as mm-hmm. it is finding an endpoint. <laughs> like, because mm-hmm. at some point I had to just like <laughs> hand in a final draft, but obviously movies are still coming out, things are still Happening so I'm like I'm like, Oh god another Black Panther Like at this point of course the second Black Panther Hadn't come out but I was like oh no Another Black Panther I'm like oh god uh, There's the other Spider-Verse movie I'm like then You know Sandman I wish I could have Written about the Sandman adaptation Because I love Sandman so much um, and In general I think I could have written A little more about Neil Gaiman because I'm Obsessed with his work But there's like you know, it's just I was obsessed with like timeliness. And I'm like, I really wanna have the newest thing that people are talking about in here. But at some point, then you're just never gonna finish the book. So And that definitely was definitely what I happened. I needed to finish this damn book. <laughs> so, at some point I just had to like I think I added in one or two last minute references. Of, like, things mm-hmm. that I had seen, like, right during the editing process. But, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you just have to stop at some, at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was there a favorite essay? Was there something that you were like, I
2: love writing this. I don't want to stop writing this. I think, <laughs> so, in the Times review, this was pointed out. Uh, Stephanie Burt reviewed it. And she was saying that it is very heavily like the anime chapter goes like pretty hard and it's true that I was like it's it's rare that I get to go so deep into anime like like going into Marvel and stuff like everyone does that now you know but like taking apart like gender and like when I started talking about the history and like how we have this idea of um, anime being so sexual, but then it's actually America played a large part in the way we view Japanese sexuality, just like in the way that we were, uh, you know, our presence there around the war, like it, it that is like really fascinating. And I, I that and like talking about like gender and magical girls and how subversive, some of that stuff was and like people don't even realize like how there were like so like queer characters and trans characters and there were depictions of, you know, strong women who were just not really following typical gender norms. Like that is so cool. And I don't think we talk about it enough. So that's that's one area that I thought. Um, in large part due to the novelty of being able to, to write about all that and think about it. hmm
1: Because there are a lot of us, especially the ones who consume the culture casually, that we don't think about anime or, or manga in that way that those who are in fandom do. And so that was very enlightening to me to, to read, uh, about these, these characters that I don't interact with on a regular basis. I love that, and it's, and speaking of, I want to go back to the casual consumption of the culture. So, in Con Crazy, <laughs> you discuss <laughs> you discuss the the change in the fandom, especially you see it, especially in the conventions like Comic Con and how it's changed over time, and you how you have these individuals who aren't. In the culture, but are very much entertained by it. Um, do you blame The Big Bang Theory for that? Oh.
2: <laughs> you I don't was, have I to answer not that, Maya, but I felt
1: like I felt like I had to ask. I felt like I had to ask the question. <laughs> That's
2: funny, I did not. I bet. Wow,
1: <laughs> because I'm going to be honest with you, I I think that a lot of us have come to the culture through that television show we see these characters they're making these references we enjoy the show we want to know what these references mean we want to know
2: who these people are so do you do you think about that at all or you know I wasn't thinking about that I was mostly thinking about like Mm -hmm. you know the fact that once the big companies started coming then everything changed Um, like I started seeing like There would be whole blocks where it would be, like, the Disney block. Like, let's see what's coming out with Disney. Or, like, the, like, what's new with, like, you know, Cartoon Network. And it would just be, like, several hours where it was just complete promotional uh, content. Um, And, you know, I'm not really complaining about that because it was also cool to see uh, previews of the new things. I mean, it's less cool now because I... I'm a critic and I can like just <laughs> 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 I still own it anyway, but still, it's still it's still fun. But because um, mm-hmm, they will like st- screen whole episodes of things or like whole chunks of movies or actual full movies in their entirety. Like I saw Ghostbusters Afterlife in its entirety at Comic-Con before like it was like a week or two or something before it came out. So um there's that but yeah with big bang theory i mostly think i think about it creating an awareness yes people of people of uh convention culture and fandom but i don't think it made i don't think it really moved the needle as much I, okay i think okay. there's more of an awareness thing as as opposed to like people seeing the big bang theory and being like oh I'm going to buy tickets to comic con but It's also interesting, the trajectory of that show and its response. That was so popular and people loved it. And, I mean, it's a funny show, but, like, I think it very quickly shifted that, like, all of a sudden everyone was, like, suddenly more woke or more aware and they were like, Oh no, these guys are skeevy. This is not okay. Like the way they talk to their girlfriends, the way they treat Penny. Like what is wrong with them? And like Sometimes how they talk about talk to Raj, the
1: only person of color. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, So Mm -hmm. it became quickly problematic. But Mm -hmm. I still like it's still it's still like nice to have on in the background sometimes. <laughs> like, I do <laughs> enjoy the references yeah. and my mom still loves it. Mm-hmm. Like my mom still loves keeping it on and watching it because she finds it mm-hmm. really funny that like she's like, mm-hmm. she's like look, they're like counting down the days to Comic-Con. That's like what you do. And I'm like, yeah, mom. <laughs> I know. I, I feel
1: like I'm so your mother because that's what I was thinking about as I was reading Con Crazy. I was like, oh, that goes back to where they were sitting around with their laptops, like trying to get Comic Con tickets. Oh, that's so real. Like, yes, Please so... don't bring
2: that up. That's some kind of <laughs> give me some PTSD response.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So I thought I'd ask because when you're referencing like all of a sudden we have these casual consumers that are really infiltrating these spaces i'm wondering if like the hardcore fans if you're wondering like where are all these people coming from like all of a sudden they're here like what's what's provoking all of this so and the, my first thing was to think of the big bang theory
2: yeah yeah you know yeah as i said i blame disney pretty much I disney for mm. that. <laughs> like i mean for real like They have really just capitalized on these fandoms. Like, Star Wars was just those three movies for a while, and then we got the prequels, and then they came back with the sequels, and now there's like 50 shows. Like, I can't even keep up. And I was like, watching Star Wars since I was a little baby. Like, (laughs) come on. (laughs) Like, it's too damn much. Yes. yes, I went on a
1: website yesterday to to look up Phase Four of the MCU, and now I'm there's just all of this stuff just being us being bombarded with all of this MCU, and I'm like, okay, I'm not I'm not certain I'm going to be able to keep up with all of the new things that's happening. But yeah,
2: Disney is definitely, definitely capitalizing, yeah. off, of, off of things, and that yeah. it really annoys me actually, like because it. I feel like that has alienated me as a fan that my fandoms don't feel the same. Yeah. I don't engage in them in the same way because now it becomes, it becomes like a burden, you know, that to keep up with everything, you have to like watch this on this streaming service. You have to watch these movies and like everything is connected. So if you decide that you're not interested in this show then you're going to miss the references in the next movie and it's, I'm like, I shouldn't feel like, you can, more than being, feel feeling like I'm being led through these universes in a natural way, like led by my interests, led by, you know, how great the storytelling and the characters are, I'm being led because, you know, Disney wants to make more money and they want me to get on as many, platforms as I can and like give them as much money as I can. And so I'm very aware of it. So it doesn't even feel like, oh, I'm doing this as like a Star Wars fan or an MCU fan. It's like, oh, I'm doing this because Disney tells me to because the next damn movie is not going to make any sense. And that's not a good feeling. You know, it doesn't, it pulls me out of the fandom. Is that a collective feeling among a
1: a lot of uh, the groups of, like that's in the culture? Is that the overarching feeling, do you think? When you guys are talking, when you guys are having these discussions, is that like, oh, this is turning into something we could have never anticipated it would turn into, and it's kind of a bummer. It
2: depends on, I
1: mean, it really depends on
2: who you speak to. I think that I have, I think that me and my friends are kind of like on the same page. That and I don't know if this is purely an age thing, too. I think part of it is age. That for things like Harry Potter, which of course has its own complications because of J.K. Rowling being a freaking idiot, but um, like, (laughs) but um, it's but like that had already kind of become dated with us because we all grew up with it, but then it kept expanding and, you know, we were already like, we can't engage in this world anymore in this way. You know, it's like you, at a certain point you kind of evolve past the fandom. And if the fandom is still going, then it's hard you're, you're like, what do I do with this? Because I have these sweet memories of this fandom and this was so precious to me. But now it's still ongoing and it's a totally different beast. So like, how do I engage with it now? And then you get this like sense of loss. And, you know, I think that like with the, with the MCU, this is the case with Star Wars. This is a case that a lot of my friends, again, we were like, we grew up with this stuff and we love it. But like, it has changed. And we can't engage with it in the same way, which, you know, it is. It is sad, and we both have that. It's like mourning the loss, like mourning. He was like, it's like grieving, you know, like, like this was like almost like you had like a friendship with this fandom, and now some part of it has changed to the point where it's not recognizable to you. So. <sighs>
1: Do you think that's part of the reason why we have nerd, why you've given us this book because because of you, you're seeing that shift? Do You feel like you're shifting a little bit out of the fandom. Will
2: you ever shift out of the fandom? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I'm gonna always be a nerd, and I'm always going to yeah yeah. Okay. No, I'm always going to engage with that, but because it's so it's it's so large and all encompassing. So even if there are individual properties. That I can engage in with the same enthusiasm. Um, there's still going to be something new, you know. There's still going to be like season two of Sandman coming out, or like you know, or the ending of Stranger Things. Or it's like there's there's still so many things to look forward to, um, and there's still creators like you know, there's constantly new creators being born, and that's really exciting. You know that that we have all of that there's there's always there's always something more and with that i wanna i wanna just plug the paperback for nerd rather quickly is that coming out this summer yes paperback. it should yes yeah. it is coming out sometime this year i think <laughs> the summer i should i should know that yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I read it was coming out in July the paperback was coming out in July but the hardback is still available yeah, so please go out and get that is there anything else that we should anticipate from you soon are, are we going to get like a, a second anthology of nerd you know especially after Sandman 2 comes out or, <laughs> or anything like that
2: I have several books that I have uh, brewing or Partially written or whatever, but I'm also a full time writer. So, like, I need to not burn myself.
1: Plug that too. Yes. Um, <laughs> Go on over to nyt.com is, yes.
2: I definitely and read my. I definitely do want to dive back into uh, talking about fandom, but not just yet, because I just wrote this book. But, you know, yeah, I'm still going to be writing about this stuff for the time. So, <laughs> yes oh well
1: thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us maya has been incredibly enlightening nerd is out nerd adventures in phantom from this universe to the multiverse is in hardback it will be in paperback this summer so go and get your copies thank you maya thanks (laughs)